0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This program is brought to you by Fine Diners Over 40, a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Learn more at finedinersover40.com. That's finedinersover40.com.
3: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, your host on Speaking Broadly. Today, I have a guest who is a registered dietitian, an expert in food policy, knowledgeable about eating all around the world. And if you want to know anything about how safe your food is, what you should think about when you go in a restaurant, what you think about when you look at the back of a label you are going to want to listen to this show very closely. My guest today is Melissa Musiker. Welcome, Melissa. Hi,
4: thank you for having me.
3: <laughs> so incredibly happy to to have you here. You have so many passions in the, the world of food based on such a strong foundation. I actually don't know any registered dietitians. You are my first and only one. That's crazy. It's a little crazy, but, you know, I live in the chef's world, and the chef world doesn't tend to intersect except in the person of you. <laughs> because That's very true. Um, we, I was reading uh, on your Twitter, I guess, about your current concern with being a woke eater in this time. yeah, And I just, I wanted to start there because to me that's a very interesting intersection between how you live in the lifestyle world mm-hmm. and how you also live in the, um, the the policy world and the political world. Your role is as a communications consultant at APCO worldwide and I didn't even know that, again, such a, a place existed with a lot of conversation around um, advocacy, food safety, um, etc. So this seems like in the crosshairs of the type of things that you care about and all of our customers do.
4: Yeah, so I think it all started for me long working on the packaged food side of the industry. And it's really easy there to know or easier now, I should say, based on in part the work I've been doing over the last 10 years to know what's in your food. There's been a ton of advocacy um, on this. Michelle Obama was an incredible leader on this point. And it, a real shift in the way consumers look at the food that they eat and a shift in this kind of influencer leadership around what is good food, right? Um, and so when you see the evolution, you can go out into a store now and buy all kinds of amazing products that didn't exist even five years ago. So for somebody who really is a values-driven, conscientious consumer, you can go out and you can find virtually any a version of virtually anything you want that's made in the way that reflects your personal values.
3: But one of the most... So that's, that's yeah. Pause there for one second, um, and maybe I'm talking about you, stopping you before you're going to go there yourself. But in your expertise in grocery, because mm-hmm. b- before you were at epco you were um, involved in the world of grocery. What is the deal with the labels? Yeah,
4: there's so many deals with those labels. So they're and they're changing, which only makes it more confusing. And only some of the labels will change. Um, there's a lot of things about a nutrition facts panel, or all the things on a label. It's actually a highly, highly regulated piece of real estate and so what products say on the front and then what they say on the back is something that a company actually doesn't have a lot of choices in assuming that they're doing it right um, which is a separate issue but they don't have a lot of choices so in terms of serving size or the nutrients that they declare on the back or how they make those do those calculations those things are all determined by regulation and there is a change that's happening right now Um, you'll see it finalized actually at the end of this year which is that they're going to start adding more information to the label. So you're probably starting to see it already. The format's changing. Um but things like added sugar, that's really the big, fundamentally the big change is added sugar being put on a label. And it's a really a reflection in the shift in the way nutrition science looks at what is and is not a healthy diet. Um, and it's a lot also reflective of, kind of an external demand for a different kind of information and more information. There's some debate in the science community about kind of the difference between added sugar and and naturally occurring sugar. That doesn't really matter. Functionally, what it does is it tells a consumer how a product is made what are the ingredients in it in a much more concrete way about something people are really concerned about. And so I think it's actually an amazing shift. You're probably going to see as a result a lot less added sugar in your food over the next probably three to four years if it hasn't happened already.
3: And uh, what can you tell us about sugar? Uh, sugar is the new tobacco?
4: I don't know that it's a new tobacco, but it is definitely the kind of like target right, the bullseye target right now in the public health community. People are really worried about it for a lot of reasons. And there's a ton that's been written on kind of why. But functionally, you know, when you live in fear of calories for a long time, and we lived in fear of fat in particular as a nutrient, I mean, if you need only read about the snack well's effect um, to understand the impact that can have, well, the sh- there's been a real shift to in understanding. Just to define the
3: snack effect in uh, case anyone... Effect.
4: So some of you may remember Snackwell's cookies, um, and they came to be in the mid-90s when there was this intense fear about anything that contained fat. Well, when you take fat out of food, it doesn't taste very good, and it doesn't feel good in your mouth. You have to add something back in to enhance flavor, and you have to make it enhance mouthfeel. And so what they used largely was high fructose corn syrup and sugar salt in more savory foods but in sweet foods it was sugar and so what that did was you had a product that was functionally really not fewer calories sugar's less calorie dense than fat but it wasn't fewer calories but it wasn't really better for you but people ate a ton of it and so it's been known as the snack will effect, this kind of like my joke, revenue neutral change (laughs) to the calorie, to the new, to the ingredient budget that ultimately didn't really serve public health in the long run. And so it's, it's become a, people kind of got fatter they kind of did. And there's, you know, look at our world changed fundamentally. If you think about the nineties to today in terms of how we live our lives and the devices in front of us and what we do and what we look at, but that was part of it. It's all kind of a system, which makes it fascinating actually from a policy and an issues perspective.
3: Other things that are on those back labels that people are concerned about is um, what I'd call the Michael Pollan effect, which is Michael Pollan saying, you know, if you don't understand what that word is, Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't buy that food. But there's also some debate about that, right? Yeah. Some things with crazy sounding names that sound like maybe, you know, they're injectable. I mean, yeah. Sodium bicarbonate, which is baking soda. Um,
4: Sodium chloride is salt. Uh, There's... Things have chemical names because they are chemicals, but that doesn't make them bad. And it doesn't mean that they're bad for you. And so, nor does it mean that something with a natural, obvious name is actually that much healthier for you. It's kind of this like weird chemophobia that's come about, I think partially because people
3: really want chemophobia, me- meaning they're afraid of chemicals, chemicals rather yeah. than like chemotherapy. Yes, yes. sorry.
4: Um, and so people are seeking control any way that they can, right? Because frankly, it's a little bit scary out there, right? And you're not, it's completely unclear, even I think for someone with a degree in nutrition and a background in dietetics who also works in food science and food policy, it's not always obvious what's good for you. So control is a way to manage that at the consumer level, and and food companies have done a really good job of leveraging and and latching onto that trend and saying, okay, we'll clean up the label, we'll do all these things to the product, those scary sounding ingredients, ascorbic acid that are completely benign, we'll take out um, and see if you like it better that way if it makes you feel more comfortable and I think it's a trend that some people have a big problem with and I kind of step back and look at it um it's really the beauty of being a consultant look at it and say okay I think this is an opportunity in a lot of ways too and the flip side of it is on the one hand you're get you are getting products that sometimes have better ingredients in them which is good That's good. On the flip side though I would say as a woman who was like a STEM you know science technology uh-huh. educated, edu- education and math student It makes me a little bit sad because I think better science literacy would probably address at the societal level some of the base concerns and kind of fears of science. But the social concerns around science, who do I trust? Are these people like paid off? Those
3: are real. Those Um, are significant. And I have to say it gets worse and worse, right? Um, You have the fake news presidency, but you also have the fake news science. And when you find out that there have been studies that have shaped our lives... And the way we've eaten that mm-hmm. were paid for by industry, it really does make you stop and wonder. So, from your the consumer point of view, what is the answer to regain trust and regain control?
4: Education, I think, more than anything else. I would say, know what you're getting. If if you're worried about it and you want to know more, dive in deep. Um, you know, and and it's again, it's hard to know whose sources to trust. But I'd say, trust yourself. Right, And um, go d- do a wide swath of looking and start to see what people are saying. And there are certainly groups out there that post all kinds of information about this. Some of it's frankly better than others. But there's a moment where I think you kind of have to just trust yourself, make decisions, and then kind of think what's I guess what's worth the fuss, this is the clinician in me, is kind of like, okay, like, is it worth it? What do you get out of this? If it makes you feel better, by all means, but if it's stressing you out and like making eating unpleasurable and eating should be like the most pleasurable part of your day, then you've probably taken it a little farther than it needs to go.
3: So if someone was just, you know, didn't even know where to begin, what are three resources that they could start with?
4: It's going to sound crazy in the era of Trump, but I still think the FDA website is a great place to start. So um, they have a lot of good information. It's a it's solid, solid baseline. Um, if you're looking for kind of another good place is the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So Dana's never <laughs> met another dietitian, <laughs> no. but the Academy is our kind of convening body. There's a ton of information at eatright.org um, and g- pretty good neutral information that's kind of based in sort of day-to-day um Common sense science How's that as a way to frame it. That's like um, So it's not pulled in directions based on kind of the, the whims of what gets reported in the news, but really good consensus science. And I think those are two great places to start. There are other groups that people, I mean, CS Center for Science and the Public Interest is another group that puts out lists, I think, I don't agree with everything that's there, but I do think that there are some pieces of information on there that are that can be really helpful. In part because they do a good job of explaining what the additives are. Mm-hmm. So they, I think, tend to take a overly precautious, mm-hmm. um, overly cautious approach. But they do—they are good explainers. And sometimes that's eighty-five percent of it is just finding someone who can explain to you what that does in your food and why it's there. Yeah. Once you understand that, then it can—I think—also just knowledge makes the unknown less scary. And so you can say, oh, okay, like, this amount is there. But I think in the United States, for the most part, I really would
3: stress that food is so safe. Right. That, that brings us back to the things that you would fuss about. Yeah. And I think my takeaway is you wouldn't fuss about a lot. Uh, there's literally only one thing. And I, I share that. What is that? <laughs> and the <laughs> only, in and, and 10 years
4: of doing this, the <laughs> only food I won't touch are sprouts. I think sprouts are just a vector um so uh, like they have disease like they just they just are it's the way those micro green, a lot of the microgreens are grown some are grown really well and are kept really clean and some are not and when you look at some nasty outbreaks that have happened over the past five or six years in, in europe not just in the united states
3: it's been like alfalfa sprouts so and anything sprouting pea sprouts alfalfa sprouts the big ones i'm the
4: thick big bean sprouts pea sprouts like shoots I'm okay with. It's really my big, like, gives me the shivers are alfalfa sprouts. Those are really, like, I don't think they taste good, which is the other issue. <laughs> so I don't miss them.
3: Right, you're extremely balanced in that way.
4: Yeah, but otherwise, like, sushi, raw meat, raw cheese, go for
3: it. I mean, that's... That yeah. seems almost extreme. And why, <laughs> why do you feel so confident in uh, those things that other people make a shoe?
4: Uh, you know, I think there's certain things people have been eating for a really long time. And um, if it's properly prepared and it's properly sourced, then I think you should feel good about eating it. And frankly, the same is probably true for sprouts. It's just my general rule about the sprouts. <laughs> and so one, my and one big takeaway <laughs> from
3: my from my years of doing food safety was sprouts. So what you have done years of food safety. What are some of the worst things that you've seen, like the scariest that you've seen? Oh, God. Um... I have seen some really nasty stuff. I actually think
4: the... This is going to sound really contrarian um, and not obvious, but some of the worst stuff I've seen is actually these, like, small, local startup brands that just really don't know what they're doing. And so... They are completely well-meaning, but they don't necessarily have good, what we'd call process controls. So, or um, hazard analysis, critical control plans. These are things in food safety world that are critical to ensuring safe food. Um, and they don't, they're so small, they're not required to have them. Um, many of them are kind of semi-cottage industry. They don't really know what they are. And so, you know, canning is one where people low acid canned food. So not like pickles. Those are really high in acid, but certain jams and jellies that don't have sugar in them um, or really low sugar, that stuff, sometimes I have a moment I look at it and I think, ooh, Um, certain fermented foods, actually, and not because it's unsafe, but they sometimes don't control the fermentation very well, and so you end up with, like, a really alcohol-laden kombucha, for example. Interesting. Um, And so those are the ones, that's where actually the only time I ever really, like, have a moment is I look at something and I think, how clean was this? But for the most part, I'm actually, it's, it's not something I stress about. I travel all over the
3: world. I'll pretty much eat anything. Um, but now, there is a, a saying. Um, I don't know if it's valid or not. Why is it that um, there's more food safety issues where there's cleaner, f- supposedly sort of an air quotes mm. cleaner food? That's a great question. Um, why is that?
4: You know, probably because there's a better reporting structure. So where there's better, when you, if you can't report, if you can't measure it, right? And so part of what we're doing is measuring and monitoring safety. And so you also have people measuring and monitoring the adverse events or the things that go wrong. Um, And we have rules about it. A lot of countries don't really have those same kind of rules about even reporting near misses, for example, or um, you very often see food recalled because of an allergen labeling where it's, you know very obvious to most people that literally almonds will be on the ingredient list but it doesn't have the specific regulated call out also contains almonds and that that actually is a class one recall it's basically a mandatory recall um that's not something other companies have. So a lot of what you see is necess- is more kind of precautionary and companies following the rules, and that should actually make you feel good. It should make you <laughs> feel comforted, not the other way around. It's just we have better press and we have social media and all these ways for you to know about it. But fundamentally, but, we have a system. But there's also
3: um, salad-based, you know, like um, mm. challenges or Chipotle, like these things that you, you think that, they're working in a better food system, yeah. and yet it's hard to control. Right? It's
4: completely hard to control. And it, it is one of those things where I we, we used to say when I worked at the trade association, and even now in kind of the crisis management world that I live in, it, it, like bad things will happen, and they'll happen to you, and a recall will happen to every food company. Every Everybody will have an issue, in part because you're serving so much food, you're making so much food, and it... Um, it's just sort of a fact of the business, I guess. It's not a sign of failure, um, but I think more a function of reality. But and now I'd say, as we get into this phase where people are looking at less consolidation, mm-hmm. it's a trade-off. Um, the consolidation is sort of, it's a way also to have kind of controls within the system and consistency when you, you know, when you're a restaurant, it's really more a challenge for restaurants than it is really for like a package food company and you're working with lots of little suppliers. That's a lot to manage. Um, and so you have to have really good relationships with them. It's kind of built on trust that what you saw when you visited them is actually reality and not, you know, them dressing up for the day for you. Um, but it's, it's really – it's tough, and and particularly for things as we get towards – and this is sort of that fun intersection of food and restaurant trends and, and and the other work that I do. So we move towards a more veg-centric diet, right? And, and we're looking at restaurants that are really into sort of raw, local, um, very produce-driven menus. It kind of – those aren't – they're not cooked, right? So that increases the risk. And then you also just have a lot more fruits and vegetables, which are – you know, you clean them, but it's you know not always a perfect system. Um, and so it's, again, it's a trade off. And I don't, but again, it shouldn't scare people. But it's a fascinating kind of moment to see how this gets managed, um, particularly as some companies scale up. But then, just as you have you know restaurant owners everywhere saying and chefs everywhere saying, you know, I want less less cooked, more fresh, it and more fruits and vegetables, less meat. What that means is you know products that are riskier in a different way okay
3: so talking about risk Mm -hmm. uh, i'm stunned by the tide pods
4: oh gosh um
3: the idea that anyone would eat (laughs) a tide pod how could that be a trend like how does that happen so, I, you know, I wish I had a
4: good answer for this. I've read about this pretty extensively because I, and this is sort of me hearkening back on my old life. I started my career as an inpatient clinical dietitian at a children's hospital. Um, and I saw all kinds of awful stuff, um, including children eating detergent or laundry. I mean, because-but kind play. of by mistake. But kind of by-oh, completely <laughs> by mistake. And so, what happened, those, those pods are pretty. Um, I can't imagine they taste very good, but they're pretty and so you know you can picture a kid getting one and kind of sticking it in their mouth. I guess it's a, f- a relatively fine line visually between that and candy. candy and it kind of died down it was a scary thing for a while and then and then as all things in in our social media driven world and full of memes they like pick back up again this is something where I've seen a lot written about how maybe this is sort of like an anti-establishment kind of, gen y way of like it's fake that these are that the idea is that they're saying something that they're that's blatantly stupid um as a way to kind of get a rise out of the main. i've seen that written um you know sometimes people just do epically stupid stuff in an effort to get attention i'm old enough to remember the jackass shows um that used to be a Dana's like shaking
3: her head, <laughs> like, on, know, MT,
4: on MTV, and yeah, where MTV they would just stuff. do like stunts. I mean, just blatantly oh God, actually, dangerous, stupid stunts. And and you know, actually, there's just
3: a piece about that. The um, some of the actors saying they really ended up drug addicted, in huge, horrible mm-hmm. pain, and because it was so stupid, but so popular. Yeah, like the stupider and dumber it was, the more they were. In mm-hmm. pain and hurt, the you know the better the show and exactly. It's, it's horrible. Oh, I see. I so got that, I got a reference. Yeah,
4: exactly. There you go. So <laughs> what I think part of it is also sort of this idea of like pretending to do something stupid that gets a rise out of the mainstream in an effort kind of to prove this subversive point. I don't know if I buy it. I just think that I like that's so
3: much better than the idea of people just being tide
4: pods. Well, they're just stupid. I mean, I can't. I mean, it will hurt you. Like, yeah. it, It's just it's a dumb thing to do. And I was saw recently there was this sort of joke about like different you know, restaurants kind of catching on to it, making their own fake version of it. And I thought, like, on the one hand, I get it. It's kind of funny. On the other hand, it doesn't help when you have people actually getting hurt and you're doing something designed to kind of minimize
3: the danger of it. Um, or you're glamorizing the pod. Right. Making, creating curiosity. Exactly.
4: So, yeah. it, I mean, it, and it's hard as somebody who's a corporate, like does corporate communications and issues and risk, it's hard to watch it because you think to yourself, like if, uh, on, if you were wearing, if you're sitting on the other side and you were like working for these companies and trying so desperately hard to be responsible and do the right thing and think how can I possibly make, like the, the terror that they must be feeling of like how do I make this stop? Because it, it's not like there's, and sometimes people think at these big companies, and I've worked with a lot of them, that there's this sort of like, they exist in this other realm where they don't know what's going on. It couldn't be further from the truth. They're acutely, acutely sensitive to their consumers. Um, and they're always kind of watching and trying, you know, not to upset anybody, really. And this is an example of something that must be giving people a lot of sleepless nights because it's, it's terrifying. And it won't, doesn't seem to stop.
3: Right. I mean, I've seen a lot of the corporate communications that come out, like, this really is not okay. Mm-hmm. And that's all that, you know, what can they do beyond that?
2: Not, not, you, yeah. you probably
3: have, you know, a year's worth of advice for them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I'm also curious about the, the recent um, interest and uh, challenges of raw water. Oh, God. Which is another, to me... Not being a nutritionist yeah. or a scientist, and definitely not a um, a STEM person, seems you know questionable because you're taking untreated water. Yeah. As a nutritionist scientist. What's the deal here? I don't know. I saw. I saw that, that. also has cult.
4: Yeah, it, it totally does, and it, and it speaks. I think also to the impact of sort of the, this venture capital disruptive, um, you know, finance environment where anybody's looking. Hot, food is like the hottest place to put VC money right now, um, and so particularly in these kind of inno, you know innovative disruptive startups, it, the notion of this. <laughs> raw water is that somebody finds like a spring and they literally bottle the water straight from the spring. When, when you buy bottled wa- bottled spring water in any other way, it gets cleaned and, and, you know, sterilized, I guess. Um, they put it in sterile bottles and, and that's because water has been making humans sick for like um, thousands, millennia. I mean, literally millions of years since the dawn of time, water made you sick. That's why beer Is like the (laughs) oldest food was because if you made beer, it wouldn't make you sick, make you drunk, but it wouldn't make you sick. (laughs) And then it could make you sick, right? But but it wasn't going to give you waterborne illness, right? Um, And so it's kind of crazy to me this idea that. That people would think, oh, raw water is somehow is somehow better. I can picture, I think, and I've traveled enough and been to glaciers and stuff. And there's pristinely clean water that you get from places like that, and you kind of drink it at your own risk a little bit. But it it's, has lots of minerals in it, and the minerals make it taste good. Um, it's crisp, and it. I get that aspect of it. What I don't understand is this idea that you, when you have sanitation possible that you would skip that step in and in an effort to sort of under this misguided thinking that it somehow has mystical benefits for you and and it doesn't it's it's water it just it has schmutz in it i don't know <laughs> like, then, i've never seen it but i have to imagine and like if it's literally coming right out of the ground that there's got to be like sediment and all kinds of so how do you feel about um, municipal water systems You know, again, this is where I feel like we in this country, we are so blessed in so many ways, but that we we also real face real disparities. And so there are definitely old systems with old pipes and um, that do put people at risk. And it's heartbreaking to to watch it from, you know, particularly from New York City, where we have probably some of the best water in the world um, and to see our neighbors, literally our neighbors in another state really suffer. Um, and this is, you know, I hate to say it, but like speaks to why you need infrastructure investment and, and why that's so important. And these basic public health measures that were put into place, you know, 100, 150 years ago need updating. Mm-hmm. Um, the pipes corrode. They're old. We have better systems now. And it's it's terrifying. I think, again, it's sort of knowing what you have coming in and being thoughtful and watchful and aware and, um, you know, paying, I guess, paying attention and where you see. Something you don't like, raising your hand and saying, "I think this isn't, I think this isn't right," because the reality of it is, I think what's scary most to me, the most upsetting and scary about this kind of situation is that people knew, right, and they turned a blind eye. Whereas I think now it's I, the trend is towards raising your hand, speaking up, and I think that's a, I think that's a great thing.
3: When you look at some of the new products, because there are so many new products every day, and as you say, we're we're launching into new arenas. There's foods that. Uh, we knew less about... Though they could be ancient. I mean, they Mm -hmm. could have existed in Japan or Korea or whatever. Um, When you look at any of those, are there there things that you feel one should be sort of more mindful or wary of?
4: Not so much wary. I think just sort of more like excited about actually that's uh, great what are you think, excited about god. Um, i mean there's fermentation is clearly like the thing humans always have loved fermented food um but fermentation is such a cool area of just straight up science uh-huh. <laughs> um and, and and kitchen science and the way it changes food the way it makes it taste the experience that you have with it this is like a new i think for americans in particular like a bold new frontier um, beyond so, sauerkraut. <laughs> I was going to say,
3: so there's a couple of very obvious things, like there's um, there's kombucha, mm-hmm. there's sauerkraut, there's, um, you know, Korean kimchi, mm-hmm. but what other things are you excited to see fermented?
4: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think... Uh, I think more less into the beverage space and kind of mm-hmm. more playing with it in food to me is I think actually a really cool, a cool place. So if you are looking at, you know, how do you enhance flavor in something or um, cultured is another way of actually describing something as ferment, fermented, so cultured butter is a whole different experience. Um, but oh, look, that's an, and you
3: love clotted cream, does that fall? I'm obsessed with clotted cream.
4: <laughs> clotted, I actually Googled this. Um, it is not it's fermented. It's not fermented, okay. No, it's just, that's just straight up separating the fat out. Um, And there's actually, if you're ever into clotted cream, there's a fantastic amount of content online about people who have experimented in different methods.
3: (laughs) To to clot their cream. To
4: clot their cream. Um, If you live outside of the UK and can't get the real thing. Um, but other fermented stuff, I mean, there's a lot of dairy happening, um, fermented non-dairy alternatives are kind of, I think that's another place where there's a lot of innovation happening, but I can, I can start picturing it kind of moving into other forms of condiments, into that mix of, um, sweet and savory that's happening right now. And I think that's a place where fermentation is really going to probably take off.
3: With that, we're going to take a very quick break. Um, Melissa and I are going to be here eating our kimchi and drinking our (laughs) kefir and washing it down with kombucha. And we'll be back after a short break.
1: Come for the food, stay for the friends. Fine Diners Over 40 is a members-only dinner club for singles and couples who enjoy dining at highly rated restaurants and sharing the experience with others. Fine Diners Over 40 appreciate food as art, as cultural adventure, as scientific experiment, and best of all food as an opportunity to take pleasure in the company of others. Join them for culinary and social adventures in New York and Seattle. Food may be the main attraction at fine diners over 40 events, but it is the friendly and interesting members who carry the day. Join them for an evening of fine dining, fun, and stimulating conversation. While enjoying innovative tasting menus by first-rate chefs, you'll talk movies, theater, pets, sports, travel, and more. Epicurus said it best. We should look for someone to eat and drink with before looking for something to eat and drink. Learn more at finddinersover40.com. That's finddinersover40.com.
3: Welcome back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. Today, my guest is Melissa Musiker, and we are, to me, having a riveting conversation (laughs) about things you should and shouldn't eat in the shouldn't pile, um... Tide pods, which I kind of knew sprouts, which I was less aware of, and in the should just go for everything fermented yeah yeah we, we feel good about that um, so I'm interested in the notion of personalized nutrition, and this is touted as one of the next big things. do you think we're close to that? What does personalized nutrition mean to you as both the dietitian nutritionist mm-hmm. um, so it's actually
4: it's funny personalized nutrition is something that there's been hints of for a long time and so when you see anytime you see these are uh, ads for getting your genome tested i guess is, is the start of what personalized nutrition looks like but functionally the idea is that you can go and get some sort of assessment done um and they'll tell you a diet plan or a supplement plan that's specifically just for you um and I think there's probably a lot of truth in it. It's probably also really expensive. Um, I don't think it'll hurt anybody. I'm not sure that it's going to change the game for the average person. Um, I think for most people, the. the basic kind of standard recommendations probably will always apply. If you're somebody with really unique needs, then I think that, and we all think we're unique, but you have (laughs) truly unique special needs. You have health conditions or you have a complex health history. You're on a lot of medications, and I can see it having a real impact. The other place where they're doing some really cool research on this is with athletes, elite, elite level athletes who are working their bodies in all kinds of ways that put strain on them. And that's a place where I think you could see some real explosion in this from a human performance perspective. Wow. Um, In terms of what you can learn from an athlete and what their nutritional unique nutritional needs are based on how they train and the sport and and what they want to build, like what skills they want to build, how you might think about how they eat. And if you need only read about like professional eaters and how they exercise and train and what they actually eat. um,
3: What do they do? I mean, I'm astonished at whoever, you know, the guy is who can... Oh,
4: Joey Chestnut, that guy?
3: He's the hot dog guy? Yeah. The hot dog guy. What does he do?
4: So um, they actually train their abdominal muscles to expand in a way where they actually give themselves sort of more space in their stomach and they train um, their breathing to, so that they can, the fact that I even know this is ridiculous, but they train, <laughs> they train their breathing so they can almost do like cyclic, like can breathe and, you cannot breathe and swallow really at the same time, but they, they train can. themselves to do that so that they can eat vast volumes of food I can't do
3: any I can't do any two things at the same time like I can't (laughs) type and talk at the same time I definitely don't think I could breathe and eat at the same time they
4: can do things like breathe and eat it sounds like a
3: you know a fish or something yeah it's unusual
4: yeah I mean it's it's athletic training even though it doesn't seem intuitive that it would be it it actually is and they have to train their abdominal muscles they train um, so they don't themselves so they don't throw up and things like that it's I we was thinking that the
3: personalized nutrition would be great for um, a people who were trying to uh, control their weight, um, just because you would know, yeah, the way you metabolize food. Yeah, I could um, see. It. I mean,
4: I could see it working there as well. I, you know, for the most part, though, um, controlling your weight is a function of what you. The vol- like literally sheer number of calories that you eat, and and I wish I wish there was some sort of like magic solution to it. You, I, you can't. Anyone who's sort of lived this experience, I feel like that's virtually everybody knows you can't really like exercise weight away. When you when you see them on TV doing that, it's really misleading. For the most part, people when you see people who've lost a lot of weight, what you see is they change the way. The relationship they had with food. It's not just the way they eat. That's too simplistic. It's literally the relationship they have with their food. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, that's something where I think it's less about the nutrients themselves. Um, and I haven't seen any good research that says that any one of these diets from a, the perspective of how much, you know, fat protein and carbohydrate that you eat really ultimately in the aggregate makes that big of a difference. It's just the number. It's like, how many calories? And there's no right number for everybody, but it's that intuition that you get about how to live your daily life. I can't imagine um, if you had to walk around every day and you were sort of like very meticulously calculating, you know, no rounding error whatsoever. (laughs) What a miserable way it would be to to live your life. It's more about the relationship you have with food. And I think that's where the personalization comes in, but it's probably more psychotherapeutic than it
3: is nutritional. One of the things that, um, I've read is that people now have this expectation of not just that you'll eat food and it will give you pleasure, but that you will eat food and it will do something for Mm you. I mean, it's almost like your food becomes your, uh, you know, dietary therapy. Like Mm -hmm. I'm going to eat this and it's going to do something for me. So I don't have to do it for myself. Um, is that fact-based? Is that just to you, kind of like what? Yeah, I mean, I, to me it's a little bit like, Whoa. I mean, sure, I, you know, I, I, and it's better than soda, so there's that.
4: Yeah, or just like you do you. I mean, it's like whatever is going to be the thing that that makes you feel good, and it's not hurting any. I, I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with that. I just think at the end of the day, to me, food is this. And eating and dining, right? Um, very MFK Fisher, right? The art of eating and dining is this idea that it's collegial and it's with other people, and that it's it's less functional and more enjoyable for you. And that when you see people who kind of make changes in their relationship with food and the way they think about it, less where they're expecting it to create something for them, and more where it just becomes a part of their daily life that that healthier relationship in my mind I think is kind of going to be the next shift is just this re um re-awareness reawakening around what it means to have a just a healthy normal relationship with food where you eat we eat for a lot of reasons but we're the primary one is I'm hu- like I'm hungry it's appropriate for me to eat not like I'm stuffing myself because I'm sad but um that you're also kind of looking at it as like this is pleasurable and exciting for me and taking I'd love to see people just take the worry away from how they eat and take the fixation and just sit back and say, this is really good.
3: Okay, so you were at a, an event recently where lots of people thought the food was not good at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you actually have, you know, crested into influencer status, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But yeah. But you ended up um, just... Happily enough, eating Noma ants. Yes. So uh, c- tell me, tell me about that. What was that like? Was it delicious? So Why did everybody else find it so undelicious?
4: For, for what it's worth, and it's probably going to make me sound like a jerk, but I've been to, this would have that would have been actually my fifth meal, Noma meal. No way. Yes. So, wow. um, <laughs> so for people who who are into that kind of food, um, it, I I preface this by saying like they they do know who I am, and I've obviously eaten there five times. They know you. Um, in the restaurants in Copenhagen. Um,
3: (laughs) Right it's not your corner bistro.
4: Um, That it was I have to say like describe the whole thing. So the whole thing basically we we very randomly were invited to a Justin Timberlake listing party and for whatever reason he thought it would somebody thought it would be a good idea to bring Noma into New York City to cater this private event and my my husband and I walk in and we think it's just going to be one thing and it turns into another. And we're walking around and we see the menus. And then we see, I'm like, this is weird. And then we see some food. We're like, this looks like Noma food. It sure tastes like Noma food. And then we see the general manager standing in the back of the corner. I'm like, what are you doing here? And he said, Justin Timberlake wanted (laughs) us to come cater. And he didn't eat a bite of it, by the way. I didn't see Justin eat. Justin didn't. No. My friend Justin. He didn't eat. No, I didn't see him eat it or anybody in his little crew. And then they left the party before really the bulk of the food was served. So that was kind of ironic. I, what was amazing to me was was watching this room of very fashionable, um, I think, very kind of position noting um, New Yorkers, who were turning their noses up at food from what is considered by many people to be literally the best restaurant in the world, and. It was in part because they didn't understand it and they weren't comfortable with it. And one of the dishes, um, a very famous one of theirs, had some kind of grasshopper in it. And they were like, I'm not touching that. Um, Another one had um, ants on it. They're little. They kind of taste sour. Um, I think they're by no means the strangest thing you'll have at a Noma meal. Um, but they just, to watch people in there turn their noses up at it, for what it's worth, they were doing with the uni too. So I guess like (laughs) there was a low bar in that room that day, but it was,
3: it was crazy to see it and and actually kind of sad in a way. But I actually think it's fascinating because one does, um, from outside of the food world, right? Like we're sort of deep into it, but from outside you certainly think like, what is all the fuss about? Why are you eating moss? Like, why is that a good thing? And it's, which Honestly, is as a Noma, uh, you know, Rene Redzepi from Noma famously uh, served reindeer moss and all these other local. They weren't delicacies; they were just forest until you cooked them. But mm-hmm. um, delicacies, and it's sort of interesting to see what people with no expectation or understanding what yeah. the food is like, what their response to it would be. And it's sort of like modern art. You know, you can go and look at splatter paintings, and you're like, my son could have done that. And there's a little bit mm-hmm. of. Um, that, but the confluence of those oh, things was. It was hysterical
4: to watch was, it. it. I mean, <laughs> it was just like, they, they, people, all of a sudden, they start bringing out the food, and the people fled the party. Um, and it was, and I sit back and I think, God, there's this whole universe of people in New York city who would have probably like given their eye teeth to, to have like unlimited, you know, passed around food there <laughs> in this room was like ran. <laughs> um, it, you know, it's, but it's not for everybody. I think that's sort of like the cool part about it is it doesn't have to be and nor should it be, but the ethos of what they do at Noma, you are experiencing in ways that you don't realize you're experiencing. So every time somebody talks about really local product, that's that's the downstream consequence of a group of chefs getting together, like really believing that this is important and it becoming part of the mainstream, more mainstream culture. Not everyone will be eating moss or ants, but you are seeing people eating hyper-local, hyper-seasonal product, and that is completely the impact of a restaurant like that.
3: And so when we talk about the impact of restaurants and, um, this moment today, it's, this goes back to the conversation with the question that I asked that I didn't let you answer at the beginning, which is about being, um, you know, an eater and in America today and how one's relationship to restaurants, um, may or may not be changed, right? Because, of what we know about the behavior of the chef, the behavior of the owner, um, whether they've been accused of sexual harassment, whether they um, there's a lot of drugs in their kitchen, um, whether they're abusive to their staff in a way that doesn't involve sexual harassment. Uh, because there's that intersection mm-hmm. um, between like the pleasure, the political moment, and the person, like, what do you do? Um what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. Mm
4: -hmm. I struggle with it. I really, it's something I personally really struggle with And And maybe it's, it is something that a lot of people, there was an undercurrent of awareness of this. Um, it wasn't a really closely held secret that this was a problem. Um, but I don't think people really realized how pervasive it was. And as you sit back and you think we've done so much as consumers right to to change the food system in all these different ways and you and you see it with these chefs you say like this chicken was so well cared for till the you know the minute ended up in an abattoir um and and yet you hear that same the stories that the same chef is in some way abusive to their staff it kind of makes you step back and think well is the food still as good um and do i want to be eating there and is this the kind of Business that I want to support in the exact same way that people looked at other aspects of the food system and said, I don't, not, that, their values don't match my values and I'm, I'm not going to purchase that anymore. The challenge is that I, it's not obvious to me what the signals are to look for um, in a restaurant that is. I guess, more professional. I think that's something that's kind of interesting in all this, the difference between American restaurants and and ones all over the world in terms of the expectations, uh, the legal professionalization of people who work there. Um, Tipped wage has been described as a major contributor to this, that people don't have the same, I guess, agency when when they work there, the same ability to speak up and and speak out when, when they feel there's abuse, that it's ter- I guess it's it's terribly upsetting to me, and I think you know one of the things that I think about is you know is it that you look for more women-owned establishments or woman-run establishments? Maybe maybe that's better, and certainly supporting them, they you know is one piece of it. Um, Is it places that, you know, are no tipping restaurants? Is that a sign? But I don't, I have not come up with a good answer. I I sit and I read voraciously about it and and I don't, I don't think there's a good answer to it, but I think that this is a movement underway and it's going to be one that probably works its way
3: through really fast right now. For me, as um, someone who was in media for, you know, food media for two decades and now am adjacent to it, it's such an interesting question because, There's only so much you can know. And I now will see pieces run on um, on sites where the site itself has said, listen, you know, you should not support um, restaurants where, you know, the chef to be abusive Mm -hmm. and we shouldn't review them. Um, So back when I was at food and wine, you know, did I did we review places where the, the chef might not. You know, um, have the best behavior, the answer to that would be yes. But now I see these sites that for themselves have set the task mm-hmm. of um, telling people to not go to those restaurants, and then they run pieces. So I just, on chefs who are known by many to be abusive, mm-hmm. to be harassers, to have left jobs because indeed they have harassed people. But how would, I mean? How do you know? I have no idea. I mean, there's not a mark on the door.
4: No, there's there's no there's no way to know. And then there's a piece of me that steps back and thinks, by not going once the news is out, right? By not going, are you hurting the people who work there who've already been so so harmed? And I I it's I was joking with Dan earlier. It's like the dilemma of the woke, of the woke eater today is how do I vote with my dollar? How do I? What do I do? And um, I was really intrigued by the piece Amanda Cohen wrote. Um, from Dirt Candy, about women in the media. Um, and, and I guess it's something where you don't, if you're not living in it, you don't necessarily think about it. But, you know, this notion that women don't get as much coverage, um, that they don't win awards, um, that they don't get the same recognition, and that they don't get the same access to capital and funding. Um, and this, some of those things, though, I do think are things that the average person can probably... Rabble rabs about in a in
3: a more effective way than we are, and I I think that um, my goal and um, the way I think about it is that if each uh, if we spend time inside the restaurants and encouraging um, not as an eater but so for someone in the media mm-hmm. or someone who is invested in bringing out people's stories that you each person who's empowered. And they have a voice, and they bring that voice to bear. They will be listened to. Mm-hmm. One person, maybe not, but four people, five people, they will be listened to. And I think pe- the um, that's the moment. You know, yep. if you've been holding something back, it's the moment to speak. And by speaking, you can really make a change because we've seen what speaking will do. Yeah. And I have a really strong belief in the in the power of words and the power of the the collective individuals, not everybody need, needing to join a group in order to make an action, but that each individual connected together and linked can actually
2: mm-hmm.
3: change so that we're not given this invisible choice um, or a choice that it's not clear if we're making a good choice mm-hmm. or a bad choice.
4: And certainly, I mean, you look at examples in the past where, where different kind of corporate entities have been pressured but through external pressure to make some really incredible changes that they would have told you five years earlier were completely impossible, antithetical to their bottom line. It it doesn't have to be that way. And, you know, past experience would suggest, frankly, otherwise. So I think this is something where it's asking, you know, Michelin, it's asking Zagat, it is, you know, certainly um, restaurant critics have been grappling with this, and you see it playing itself out in social media. Um, These different, you know, different groups that it that offer confer rankings or awards, I my sense is that, in time, each of them will be facing pressure to assess the inner workings, not just the food. It, it, it's not just the hospitality and the service and the product. It's the people behind the product. And that is, I think, where the big shift will happen. And it won't be overnight. But if I had, was a betting person, I'd say in the next five years we'll see a really big shift in the way these groups view their responsibility over this. Because I think they're going to be put under pressure to take it on even if they don't think it's their problem because the only way sort of it has to, this stuff has to just come out in the light and it's going to be ugly and painful and then you kind of move on um, and this is a place where you can, where there's a shift and certainly this whole notion of tip wage, I think is a place where, like from an advocacy perspective is I have my sense is just going to keep going. The pressure is going to happen state by state, city by city until there's a bigger
3: conversation about this in the United States. I agree with you completely that this is, um, this is the opportunity and it is a movement that will help bring pressure to bear and bear really good fruit. Um, As I was just saying, one of the things that I like to do is shed a light on um, women in particular who deserve recognition and I'm wondering as they close to the show if there's some woman with whom you've worked or a woman that who you admire, that um, you'd like to bring her out into light and have her voice be heard?
4: Yeah, sure. So one of the cool things that I do in kind of my actual day job is I go out there and i it's a fancy form of online stalking, but we, we really we assess influencers in different areas, and we have been looking a lot at influencers in the sustainable nutrition space. And the most amazing thing to me coming out of it was just these incredible, young, brilliant women who are have such great voices in this. And so I know Danielle Gold's been on your show. Um, She's somebody who I just think is tremendous. Um, you know, there's others. nazriahi who uh, launched a group called Bitten. Um, Eve Tiro paul wrote a book called The Taste of Generation Yum, which I think is actually one of the best articulations of the sort of gen ac- or millennial um, fixation. <laughs> the sort of why are millennials so fixated on food, and her exploration of that I think is one that's that's really smart. And then, you know, we look at there's women. Um, this woman, Gunhild Stordalen, MD PhD. Um, who launched a group called the Eat Foundation. And what she, the sort of movement she's creating around sustainable nutrition, her incredible, more than anything, convening power, um, her ability to draw in celebrity voice, but um, informed celebrity voice. It's not just celeb for the sake of celeb. I I see her as somebody who's really going to be kind of this next wave of, of change. And she's Less in the United States and more kind of in Europe and Southeast Asia where she's really pushing her work. But I think she's another one who, you know, I get the sense isn't always taken so seriously, but it has so much to say. And the work that her group is doing is, I mean, it is so phenomenal and, and rich. Um, deeply thoughtful, science-based. I mean, there's there's so much going on there. So there is this kind of it's kind of cool to see this community, this next generation of leaders who are, you know, fundamentally different than the activists of the past. They're they're not academics, which is kind of cool, um, but they're they're disruptors. They're entrepreneurial. They're not out to get anybody. They're just like, if I don't like how you're doing what you do, I'm not going to try to ruin you. I'm just going to launch a better product. I don't think your con- <laughs> It's like, I don't think your conference is relevant to me. I'm going to launch a better conference. I, you know, your NGO isn't doing what I think it ought to do. I'm just going to launch my own. So different than the way, you know, I look at some of these sort of classic stakeholders, influencers we might've worked with or engaged with, you know, 10 years ago at the beginning of my career. Now we have this really great group who just look at the world in a totally different way and I think there's so much potential there with them to do so much great stuff and it's exciting to know them
3: and work with them. And that People is our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Melissa, for joining me. That was great. If people want to follow you yep. or your work, how do we do that? So um, my global eating adventures, um, so
4: like when I see Justin Timberlake at a NOMA party, um, is uh, not that kind of dietitian on um, Instagram. And then um, my, my Twitter feed is much more kind of focused on my, on my work work, um, which is at M-M-U-S-I-K-E-R. RD. Um, so it's just, it depends on kind of what you're into. Um, <laughs> and I don't really let the two worlds mix, which is very uninfluencer, influencer actually, of me. Usually people are this completely integrated single machine. But One's really I keep for work, and one's kind of my my side. That's day. great. The
3: two the two sides of Melissa, <laughs> and you know where to find me at FWScout on Instagram and Twitter. And I just want to thank uh, my amazing engineer David Tattershore and Carlin Thompson. Um, I always want to call you Taryn Thompson <laughs> because that's her handle. Um, thank you guys and all you listeners. Come on back next week. Have a great week in eating.
2: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter.